Chapter Nine of the Jesuits in North America. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Jesuits in North America in the Seventeenth Century by Francis Parkman. Chapter Nine, sixteen thirty-seven. Character of the Canadian Jesuits. Before pursuing farther these obscure but noteworthy scenes in the drama of human history, it will be well to indicate, so far as there are means of doing so, the distinctive traits of some of the chief actors. Mention has often been made of Brebeuf, that masculine apostle of the faith, the Ajax of the mission. Nature had given him all the passions of a vigorous manhood, and religion had crushed them, curbed them, or tamed them to do her work like a dammed-up torrent, sluiced and guided to grind and saw and weave for the good of man. Beside him, in strange contrast, stands his co-laborer, Charles Garnier. Both were of noble birth and gentle nurture, but here the parallel ends. Garnier's face was beardless, though he was above thirty years old. For this he was laughed at by his friends in Paris, but admired by the Indians, who thought him handsome. His constitution, bodily or mental, was by no means robust. From boyhood he had shown a delicate and sensitive nature, a tender conscience, and a proneness to religious emotion. He had never gone with his schoolmates to inns and other places of amusement, but kept his pocket-money to give to beggars. One of his brothers relates of him, that seeing an obscene book, he bought and destroyed it, lest other boys should be injured by it. He had always wished to be a Jesuit, and after a novitiate which is described as most edifying, he became a professed member of the order. The church, indeed, absorbed the greater part, if not the whole, of this pious family, one brother being a Carmelite, another a Capuchin, and a third a Jesuit, while there seems also to have been a fourth under vows. Of Charles Garnier there remained twenty-four letters, written at various times to his father and two of his brothers, chiefly during his missionary life among the Hurons. They breathed the deepest and most intense Roman Catholic piety, and a spirit enthusiastic, yet sad, as of one renouncing all hopes and prizes of the world, and living for heaven alone. The affections of his sensitive nature, severed from earthly objects, found relief in an ardent adoration of the Virgin Mary. With none of the bone and sinew of rugged manhood, he entered, not only without hesitation, but with eagerness, on a life which would have tried the boldest, and sustained by the spirit within him, he was more than equal to it. His fellow missionaries thought him a saint, and had he lived a century or two earlier, he would have perhaps been canonized. Yet while all his life was a willing martyrdom, one can discern, amid his admirable virtues, some slight lingerings of mortal vanity. Thus, in three several letters, he speaks of his great success in baptizing, and plainly intimates that he had sent more souls to heaven than the other Jesuits. Next appears a young man of about twenty-seven years, Joseph-Marie Chamonot. Unlike Brebeuf and Garnier, he was of humble origin, his father being a vine-dresser, and his mother the daughter of a poor village schoolmaster. At an early age they sent him to Châtillon on the Seine, where he lived with his uncle, a priest, who taught him to speak Latin, and awakened his religious susceptibilities, which were naturally strong. This did not prevent him from yielding to the persuasions of one of his companions to run off to Bune, a town of Burgundy, where the fugitives proposed to study music under the fathers of the oratory. To provide funds for the journey, he stole a sum of about the value of a dollar from his uncle, the priest. This act, 
which seems to have been a mere peccadillo of boyish levity, determined his future career. Finding himself in total destitution at Bonn, he wrote to his mother for money, and received in reply an order from his father to come home. Stung with the thought of being posted as a thief in his native village, he resolved not to do so, but to set out forthwith on a pilgrimage to Rome, and accordingly, tattered and penniless, he took the road for the sacred city. Soon a conflict began within him between his misery and the pride which forbade him to beg. The pride was forced to succumb. He begged from door to door, slept under sheds by the wayside or in haystacks, and now and then found lodging and a meal at a convent. Thus, sometimes alone, sometimes with vagabonds whom he met on the road, he made his way through Savoy and Lombardy in a pitiable condition of destitution, filth, and disease. At length he reached Acona, when the thought occurred to him of visiting the holy house of Loreto, and imploring the succor of the Virgin Mary. Nor were his hopes disappointed. He had reached that renowned shrine, knelt, paid his devotions, and offered his prayer, when, as he issued from the door of the chapel, he was accosted by a young man, whom he conjectures to have been an angel descended to his relief, and who was probably some penitent or devotee bent on works of charity or self-mortification. With a voice of the greatest kindness, he proffered his aid to the wretched boy, whose appearance was alike fitted to awaken pity and disgust. The conquering of a natural repugnance to filth, in the interest of charity and humility, is a conspicuous virtue in most of the Roman Catholic saints, and whatever merit may attach to it was acquired in an extraordinary degree by the young man in question. Apparently he was a physician, for he not only restored the miserable wanderer to a condition of comparative decency, but cured him of a grievous malady, the result of neglect. Chamonot went on his way, thankful to his benefactor, and overflowing with an enthusiasm of gratitude to Our Lady of Loreto. As he journeyed towards Rome, an old burgher, at whose door he had begged, employed him as a servant. He soon became known to a Jesuit, to whom he had confessed himself in Latin, and as his acquirements were considerable for his years, he was eventually employed as teacher of a low class in one of the Jesuit schools. Nature had inclined him to a life of devotion. He would fain be a hermit, and to that end practised eating green ears of wheat, but finding he could not swallow them, conceived that he had mistaken his vocation. Then a strong desire grew up within him to become a recollect, a capuchin, or above all a Jesuit, and at length the wish of his heart was answered. At the age of twenty-one he was admitted to the Jesuit novitiate. Soon after its close, a small duodecimo volume was placed in his hands. It was a relation of the Canadian mission, and contained one of those narratives of Brebeuf which have been often cited in the preceding pages. Its effect was immediate. Burning to share those glorious toils, the young priest asked to be sent to Canada, and his request was granted. Before embarking, he set out with the Jesuit Poncet, who was also destined for Canada, on a pilgrimage from Rome to the shrine of Our Lady of Loreto. They journeyed on foot, begging alms by the way. Chamonot was soon seized with a pain in the knee, so violent that it seemed impossible to proceed. At San Severino, where they lodged with the Barnabites, he bethought him of asking the intercessions of a certain poor woman of that place, who had died some time before with the reputation of sanctity. Accordingly he addressed to her his prayer, promising to publish her fame on every possible occasion, if she would obtain his cure from God. The intercession was accepted, the offending limb became sound again, and the two pilgrims pursued their journey. They reached Loreto, 
and kneeling before the Queen of Heaven, implored her favor and aid, while Chaumonot, overflowing with devotion to this celestial mistress of his heart, conceived the purpose of building in Canada a chapel to her honor, after the exact model of the holy house of Loretto. They soon afterwards embarked together, and arrived among the Hurons early in the autumn of 1639. Noel Chabonnel came later to the mission, for he did not reach the Huron country until 1643. He detested the Indian life, the smoke, the vermin, the filthy food, and the impossibility of privacy. He could not study by the smoky lodge-fire, among the noisy crowd of men and squaws, with their dogs and their restless screeching children. He had a natural inaptitude to learning the language, and labored at it for five years with scarcely a sign of progress. The devil whispered a suggestion into his ear. Let him procure his release from these barren and revolting toils, and return to France, where congenial and useful employments awaited him. Chabonnel refused to listen, and when the temptation still beset him, he bound himself by a solemn vow to remain in Canada to the day of his death. Isaac Jogues was of a character not unlike Garnier. Nature had given him no especial force of intellect or constitutional energy, yet the man was indomitable and irrepressible, as his history will show. We have but a few means of characterizing the remaining priests of the mission otherwise than as their traits appear on the field of their labors. Theirs was no faith of abstractions and generalities. For them, heaven was very near to earth, touching and mingling with it at many points. On high, God the Father sat enthroned, and nearer to human sympathies, divine incarnate in the Son, with the benign form of his Immaculate Mother, and her spouse, St. Joseph, the chosen patron of New France. Interceding saints and departed friends bore to the throne of grace the petitions of those yet lingering in mortal bondage, and formed an ascending chain from the earth to heaven. These priests lived in an atmosphere of supernaturalism. Every day had its miracle. Divine power declared itself in action immediate and direct, controlling, guiding, or reversing the laws of nature. The missionaries did not reject the ordinary cures for disease or wounds, but they relied far more on a prayer to the Virgin, a vow to St. Joseph, or to the promise of a nuvin, or nine days' devotion, to some other celestial personage, while the touch of a fragment of a tooth or a bone of some departed saint was of sovereign efficacy to cure sickness, solace pain, or receive a suffering squaw in the throes of childbirth. Once, Chamonot, having a headache, remembered to have heard of a sick man who regained his health by commending his case to St. Ignatius, and at the same time putting a medal stamped with his image into his mouth. Accordingly, he tried a similar experiment, putting into his mouth a medal bearing the representation of the Holy Family, which was the object of his especial devotion. The next morning found him cured. The relation between this world and the next was sometimes of a nature curiously intimate. Thus, when Chamonot heard of Garnier's death, he immediately addressed his departed colleague, and promised him the benefit of all the good works which he, Chamonot, might perform during the next week, provided the defunct missionary would make him heir to his knowledge of the Huron tongue and he ascribed to the deceased Garnier's influence the mastery of that language which he afterwards acquired. The efforts of the missionaries for the conversion of the savages were powerfully seconded from the other world, and the refractory subject who was deaf to human persuasion softened before the superhuman agencies which the priest invoked to his aid. It is scarcely necessary to add that signs and voices from another world, visitations from hell and visions from heaven, were incidents of no rare occurrence in the lives of these ardent apostles. 
to Berbeuf, whose deep nature, like a furnace white-hot, glowed with the still intensity of his enthusiasm, they were especially frequent. Demons in troops appeared before him, sometimes in the guise of men, sometimes as bears, wolves, or wildcats. He called on God, and the apparitions vanished. Death, like a skeleton, sometimes menaced him, and once, as he faced it with an unquailing eye, it fell powerless at his feet. A demon in the form of a woman assailed him with the temptation which beset St. Benedict among the rocks of Subiaco, but Berbeuf signed the cross, and the infernal siren melted into air. He saw the vision of a vast and gorgeous palace, and a miraculous voice assured him that such was to be the reward of those who dwelt in savage hovels for the cause of God. Angels appeared to him, and more than once St. Joseph and the Virgin were visibly present before his sight. Once, when he was among the neutral nation, in the winter of 1640, he beheld the ominous apparition of a great cross, slowly approaching from the quarter where lay the country of the Iroquois. He told the vision to his comrades. What was it like? How large was it? they eagerly demanded. Large enough, replied the priest, to crucify us all. To explain such phenomena is the province of psychology, and not of history. Their occurrence is no matter of surprise, and it would be superfluous to doubt that they were recounted in good faith, and with a full belief in their reality. In these enthusiasts we shall find striking examples of one of the morbid forces of human nature, yet in candor let us do honor to what was genuine in them, that principle of self-abnegation which is the life of true religion, and which is vital no less to the highest forms of heroism. End of chapter 9